Here today, gone tomorrow, uh, like the flip of a switch, in the blink of an eye, the drop of a hat, well, we have a stack of phrases, don't we, to express how quickly our situations can change, even unexpectedly so. And I imagine that we can think of moments in life, good or bad, when the quality of our circumstances adjusted more quickly than we anticipated, changing our situation and outlook, well, entirely. As Christians, we know that God reigns over our circumstances. We know that the Lord oversees what we have or do not have, providing for his people, directing our lives for his glory and for our good. And Psalm 126 reflects upon these matters and how God can redirect our circumstances for the good. Now, most pastors have an existential crisis of sorts at moments like this one, since I just have to be honest that this is my last sermon with you as a pastor here. And a lot of times we end up wrestling with, should we just continue on in some sermon series we've been doing, do something pretty normal, and then stick some closing thoughts on the end, or or what else? And perhaps because no thoughts truly seem sufficient, most of the time I think the choice ends up being to preach something kind of indirect. Now, despite how you know that I usually play things very close to the vest and have mastered the British understatement, uh, my hope today is to reflect upon Psalm 126 to summarize, well, really the two main things that I hope I might have left with you from my time as a pastor here. And so, based on Psalm 126, here are, the print, here are the two principles that I really hope to leave with you. One, believer, God has restored your fortunes in Jesus Christ. And two, because of that, Christians should learn to laugh. There is a reshaping of our outlook because of God's work in our lives that allows us to recognize more good things in the world around us and laugh about them. So you thought it was madness, but it was Psalm 126. So here we are. The main point then today is that God's work for our good provides us with palpable joy. God's work for our good provides us with palpable joy. And we're going to think about this in three points. An ideal, an interruption, and an intermediary. And so first, let's think about an ideal. Now, as it is the case, with a great number of our psalms, uh, the background to this one isn't entirely sure. Now, some think that this psalm is about a, a literal abundant harvest after a worrying season of, of planting and, and waiting. And you can see how, in particularly verse 6, suggests this sort of understanding with how it talks of going out to collect the harvest. Others think that the psalmist speaks figuratively about God restoring Israel after exile using various metaphors about God, what God would do uh, to return his people to their homeland. 
And so the background of exile, of course, I mean, shapes a lot of uh, Israel's prophetic hope as they looked toward the future being enslaved or at least cast out into foreign lands. After years of living under but violating the Mosaic Covenant, God sent them into exile under Assyria, Babylon, and Persia for their transgressions of his law. And throughout the prophets, the hope held forth is return from the nations to the promised land. Perhaps the, the most catching parallel to support this understanding of, of Psalm 126 is Jeremiah 30, verses 18 and 19. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. And so we, we see there very clearly the language of restored fortunes resembling our psalm today, suggesting that, well, the psalmist may have indeed spoken this way too about God returning Israel to the land after exile, also using metaphors from the seasons and harvest to enrich the point. And personally, I think that this background is the, the of prophesied restoration from exile is the more convincing. Now, regardless, though, of that question, so it's important, but we can get more to the point. Clearly, the psalmist is out to celebrate how God's restoration results in his people's rejoicing. Psalm 126 has two halves, reinforcing the same point, really just from two different perspectives. So in verses 1 to 3, the perspective is past tense. Right? Stating the certainty of God's restoring work. Basically, it's already happened in verses 1 to 3. And then, in verses 4 to 6, though, the perspective is future tense, calling on God to do his restoring work. So it opens, stating the surreal feeling, like you are dreaming. As things are so good, it couldn't be true, but just to realize that, in fact, the dream is real. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. From the outset, what the psalmist is teaching us is that God's goodness is really better than we can imagine. We think frequently, no the limits of what God can do. We, we see the only options available to us and think God probably has to work within the limits of what we can see. At least see it possible. He's, the truth though is that He is not bound by our limitations or what we can think of. And that, then, is why we see the the two effects of God's restoring work 
in verse 2. This this stuff that God has done for us was so good, I can't really believe it, but here's what's going to happen because he's done it. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Now the first effect. The first effect is personal. Experiential, in a sense. God's restoring work, well, pours renewed joy into us. Notice, though, that this this joy is certainly palpable. Laughing happens. Shouts of joy occur. Reverence for God, then, well, should be reverent. I mean, we might even say to, to some degree with a certain understanding of it, somber, yet also has to be something jubilant. Jubilee does not mean flippant, as if it is not serious, but does mean rejoicing. And the second effect, so the first effect is personal. We are renewed in joy. And the second effect is external in the sense. Now you can take that first, that first effect, uh, individually or sort of as the, as the people of God. Both are true. The second effect is external in the sense that God's goodness to his people will cause those outside to recognize his goodness. You see it? The nations say that the Lord has done great things for his people. Now there's good news. Why? Why would the nations notice it? Because they see the change in the demeanor of God's people. They have noticed these shouts of abundant laughter and cries of joy. And so they investigate what's up with this, only to find that God has given his people a new state of affairs. Now, the big important qualification I think here is that God does not restore his people just to make them happy and to give them fits of laughter. No, he he works good for his people for his own glory so that his fame as the good and joy-granting God rebounds throughout the world. And the nations then recognize the true God's goodness. But his people themselves celebrate, and I think this is critical, celebrate not only their circumstances, but moreover, the God who gave them those restored circumstances. Verse 3, The Lord has done great things for us. The nations have said it and the people of God say it too. We are glad. Now, what can we learn so far? Well, we can see how if we lack, personally speaking, if if we lack reason and prompting to laugh in the Christian life, we have perhaps not accounted properly for the great things that God has done for us. If your outlook is dour, notwithstanding our position in a Scottish denomination, um, 
perhaps we've not reckoned rightly with the things that God has already done for us. There are seasons of hardship. Indeed, there are. And yet, even as we'll see, there is always reason to laugh because of what God has already done for us. There is an ideal, an ideal of God's work for us that grounds our hope and joy in a fixed way. That brings us to our second point, an interruption, an interruption. Because even with that ideal, our joy and and ready ability to laugh was often dislodged by troubles. Interruptions happen that make us need God's work again in a specific sense to what's happening. The shift of perspective from the Psalms' first to second half helps us see how rejoicing and how God has restored us in the past relates to our experience of hardship now. One of the Christian life's tensions is knowing that we are meant to have joy in the Lord and that there is trial, tribulation, and suffering in it. That tension didn't originate in the New Testament, as if it came out of nowhere, but in fact seems to be built here right into Psalm 126. The first half, after all we've seen, affirms the premise of joy in the Lord, the ideal perhaps leaving us with the question, well, what if I don't feel like shouting for joy? What if I'm not laughing even when I think on what God has done for me. And the second half addresses that problem. This section starts calling out to God to bring restoration, even though the previous section was devoted to extolling restoration that has already been granted. The psalmist wrote, Restore our fortunes. The vocative, right? Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Right? Each, each wet season, uh, the, the waters uh, would flow new through this desert region with new vigor and fullness, bringing greenery and life back to the land that had dried out and died. The psalmist cried to God to treat his people like that. Treat them like a newly reinvigorated river brings new life back to a dried out and dead land. And I think we have to reckon. I think we have to reckon with the experiential reality of this psalm. With a certain uh, hopeful opening and a second half crying for help as this psalm depicts. Namely, we know the fixed hope of what God has provided for us in the past, yet life contains such trials that seem like interruptions of constant enjoyment of that. Even though we have this fixed restoration, we find ourselves constantly crying to God for new restoration. And such is the pattern of the Christian life. 
God has ensured our restoration, but we do not yet possess it in full measure. We have the guarantee of glory, but not the present experience of it. Psalm 126 then describes our experience as Christians living in the tension of the ages as restoration has been accomplished, but we also look ahead for it to happen in full. Now again, what can we learn? We must reckon with how Christian joy does not mean that there are no hardships in life. We can expect an interruption to our experience of joy in the restoration that God has given to us. We live where we look back to what God has done, knowing the certainty of of his restoration and finding joy and laughter in it, yet longing for him to restore us now. We learn that we must train ourselves to look beyond these interruptions to our ultimate source of rejoicing and laughter. And that brings us to our final point, an intermediary. An intermediary. So the the last two verses here in the psalm reflect more fully on, on that tension over the interruption of joy in the Christian life and force us to reckon more thoroughly with this psalm's likely context. So the psalmist illustrates the nature of our tension, at least how we should think of it, with an agricultural metaphor. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now the point of the metaphor is that God will restore his people's fortunes. But we see something profound in the metaphor that is, I think, for our encouragement, namely, how long this restoration might take. Both parts of the metaphor describe sowing and reaping, but there is a a season between those actions. Time passes before the situation requiring our restoration truly changes. When we are in the midst of hardship, the time between sowing and sadness and reaping and laughter can feel like forever. And yet scripture promises that God's restoration is coming. And so we're forced to ask, how can we hold on to our joy and laughter from certain restoration even during the periods of sowing with weeping? And I think we start by remembering that this psalm is likely about Israel's restoration from exile 
under foreign empires. Because of their sin in continually breaking the law of the covenant that God had made with them, the nation was convicted of transgression and sent away from the place where God had promised to dwell with them. And yet God would restore them and bring them back to their land so that they might live with and for God once again. Now that signals, I think very plainly, how this psalm points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We rebelled against God by our sin. We turned against his ways and broke his law. We sowed iniquity, therefore should reap destruction, specifically by being sent away from God's blessed presence to receive his everlasting wrath. Yet, God has not left his people under the curse of sin's exile. No, he has provided a mediator, an intermediary. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bear our sin's curse and to live the righteous life that we should have lived. Christ earned our citizenship in heaven and removed the penalty of our iniquity from us in his life and death. God himself came in our place to endure our exile that he might grant to us restoration. And for that reason... For that reason, there is the other way that this metaphor can happen out, can play out. Restoration might be as quick as going out to sow weeping, but coming back that day having harvested joy. And so we truly find ourselves living within Psalm 126. Christ has restored our fortunes before God himself and has purchased our everlasting life to dwell with him in everlasting rest in his coming kingdom. As Colossians 1.13 has said, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the son's kingdom where sin is forgiven. And as we bear up, waiting for that kingdom to come fully, we often cry out to the Lord to bring his restoration to us. Yet we also know that he has already given us restoration in Christ. Even in our hardest moments then. Even as we struggle in the season of sowing waiting for the reaping because we have this intermediary, the Lord Jesus Christ who has stood for us to live, die, rise, and intercede on our behalf, we know that our ultimate and everlasting fortunes are restored. Our restoration causes our rejoicing, teaching Christians to laugh, over the riches of joy given to us by Jesus. The Lord has done great things for us. 
We are glad. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful to belong to the Lord who wants his people to delight. Not a God who demands and demands and demands simply for your own benefit, for the things that you need as if we can offer you something that you have not already given. But we belong to the Lord who distributes delight. You are the God who has restored us that we might rejoice. You are the God who has filled our mouths with laughter. And so we give thanks that you have restored our fortunes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therein, you give us reason to laugh. We pray that we might treasure up this truth and practice in our hearts and lives. We pray you might work it out in the lives of, of this congregation. And we pray your blessing upon this church, that as it strives to glorify you, to honor your name, to proclaim the truth and the truth of the gospel in this great city, we pray that you shower blessings upon it. That you add to her in depth and in number continually. That there will be a day when these walls struggle to hold all who come here to know more of the Lord Jesus. That you prosper all of the efforts here to encourage your people, to build them up in holiness and comfort unto salvation, to strengthen the body of Christ, and to grow the body of Christ. And so we ask that you make this now and until the sun returns a beacon of grace in the Lord Jesus. We pray for Pastor Andy as he undertakes the, the primary uh, work of preaching each week for a time at least, morning and evening. And we pray that you'd sustain him in his labors, that you'd give him not only the energy for it, but joy in it. And that you would give great prosperity to all of the things he sets his hand to do. Provide for him and his family that they might know your goodness and that others might say, the Lord has done great things for them. We pray for our elders the whole session as they lead this congregation that you invest infinite wisdom in their midst that they might know the way ahead that they might know how to pursue you best and how to care for the people here and even expand to include new ones we pray for our Covenant children, we rejoice that in parts of the world there are measures that perhaps may indeed protect lives of children. We pray here today for uh, the spiritual life of all of the children born and baptized into this congregation, that they might know your work in their hearts, that every single child born to believers of, of this congregation might make professions of faith, 
We know that in many ways this is a big ask, but you are a big God and we long for more reasons to say, there is our God at work. And so we pray that you might do this and many other things for us. We don't know how to ask for all that we need, but we trust that you hear us. And we trust that indeed you will respond and provide. We pray all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.